Yep. Give me a nod yeah, when you're ready. Shooter's ready. Stand by. Hey, good evening, everyone. This uh, this evening we have Yimin Lin, the USPSA president. Um, quick introduction for him. Uh, he joined the Marine Corps back um, early 2000s for about four and a half years. He was a logistics officer. Uh, you may know him as the traveling RO. If you've shot a major match, you've likely ran into him uh, as one of the staff that has um, RO'd a stage or just helped out in general. But um, other than that, Yimin, uh, do you want to hit us with a quick introduction? Um, I think you did a pretty good job uh, there, Frank. Like I said, um, I, I'm the current USPSA president. I uh, spent about four and a half years in the Marine Corps as a uh, 0402 logistics officer uh, with 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. Uh, spent two deployments in Iraq in the initial invasion and then sent back again because apparently the United States needed the help. Uh, got out in 2005. Uh, spent a couple of years in the you know contracting defense industry, uh, Silicon Valley, that sort of thing. That uh, around 2000 and I think 13 or 14, uh, found USPSA uh, of through all things the uh, the old um, the old uh, through an old tactical tactical forum. I think it was the pistol forum at the time. So somebody mm -hmm. had put up a range diary there, and I thought, well, I really want to get better at shooting pistol because the tactical classes I taken at the time, I realized I can't shoot a pistol for garbage. Uh, found USPSA on my own, uh, really fell in love with it and decided I need to get started not only working there as a competitor, but also as staff. So that was from about 2014, 15 up until about now. And I guess, you know, here we are. Yeah. Are you from the Silicon Valley originally? Uh, no, I'm actually from Western Kentucky. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you know, good bourbon. <laughs> uh, not, not so much. So uh... I, I'm, I'm I, I I know we we do have some quality bourbon out in Kentucky, uh, but you know it's 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 kind of a surprise for most people to hear that because I guess apparently I went to college, so college kind of worked that out. But if you really want me to hear me kind of break out that drawl, it comes out on occasion. So you spent most of your childhood in Kentucky. Yep, eighteen years in Western Kentucky, and then went to college out east, and then ended up in California. Okay, very interesting. Um, so I started competing in California. And I think what really stood out to me was when I found the competitive scene, that was probably the most close-knit competitive scene I've ever uh, ran into to this day, simply because the California government doesn't want people out there doing that kind of stuff. Um, was that a similar experience for you? Um, I definitely found the same thing. Uh, I was fortunate enough when I first started in USPSA, I found a club that was really more of a community-focused club than a competitive-focused club. Um, there is definitely a place for that where it's it's a it's a more of a social thing that that uh, that's wrapped around USPSA rather than a USPSA thing that has community as sort of a sidebar. Um, you know, and that really helps. You know, you 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 ran into a really good environment that everybody cared. They really wanted to help. They kind of showed you everything there is about USPSA, not just the competitive shooting, but the volunteer 
uh, requirement to make sure that the matches happen. And then at some point, you know, then going on to, you know, more competitive clubs that, that really laid the foundation so that it wasn't just, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of people running around really fast or shooting really, you know, quickly. And I don't know if this is the game for me. Um, the community aspect, I think apart from, I think my time in the Marine Corps, it's probably one of the more closer knit communities I've, I've, uh, had the fortune to be a part of. Yeah, I found the same thing. I started competing in uh, Southern California, and uh, my I was all jacked up. My first match, uh, people helped me out. They gave me gear. They kind of showed me the ropes. Um, and honestly, it spoiled me. Um, I, I started shooting at uh, Linnea Del Fuego out there at the Palo Range uh, out near Temecula. And um, I, I'd still go back there if I was in the SoCal area. Um, but yeah, all really interesting things. Um, I just bring up Silicon Valley because uh, I'm originally from San Jose. San Jose okay. Sharks is like my first uh, my first job in high school. Nice. So I got to ask, um, you know, I know what brought me to the Marine Corps and a lot of what brought me to the Marine Corps is my parents always say, oh, you can join any branch of service except the Marine Corps. And what happens? I join the fucking Marine Corps. You know, don't do what I'm told. Whatever. Uh, but so when did you decide to join the Marine Corps and like why why the Marine Corps over any of the other branches? Um, so the so at Yale University, believe it or not, the Marine Corps actually comes up there and posts up uh, recruitment for officer candidate school. Um, they were the really the only branch that did so. Um, you know, my background is primarily military history, uh, a little bit of political science. And so when it came time to figure out what I wanted to do after college, I, I knew I didn't want to go to grad school. I really didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. And at the time, I really didn't want to go work in sort of investment banking and consulting like 40% of my class was uh, in New York. So then I thought, okay, well, I'll join the military. And at the time, um, you know, the Marine Corps does such a great job with their advertising was, okay, I'm going to join the hardest service. And the hardest service at the time in my mind was the Marine Corps because, you know, flaming dragons and, and rock monsters and and climbing up you know all kinds of crazy things and to you know to give credit to the marine corps recruiting command the officer you know the officer that was in charge of officer candidate recruiting i mean he made fairly regular trips up to new haven and just would set up a table and you know just see if anybody would come in and join so um it was kind of a combination of really good advertising on the part of the marine corps and that follow-up from the officer recruiting office down in manhattan of all places I, I, I have to say I'm still bitter that I never got to fight a lava monster or anything like that. It's kind of bullshit. But you know what? The Marine Corps has good propaganda that they put out, uh, but it's been a good career. So uh, whenever you decided to, you know, go toward that goal of being a Marine, um, did you have a lot of support given your academic and family background? Um, there was a certain amount of support there, uh, surprisingly enough. So Yale University actually has. Uh, an alumni interview program. And so believe it or not, the the person that interviewed me and really convinced me that going to Yale was a good idea was um, he had actually, he was actually in the Marine Corps. So he was a Marine Corps combat engineer in the mid fifties. Uh, he served at the same time as, as governor Pete Wilson from California. So that was, you know, back then there was still a, a strong uh, measure of serving your country you know, that really didn't change up until maybe like the late 60s or 70s. But at the time, you know, going to an Ivy League school didn't necessarily mean, you know, go do non-military things. There was there was still a very strong service to country and community that existed at the time. So th there was actually, you know, more support than I expected. <clears throat> okay. And, uh, you know, 
fast forwarding to the end of your time in the Marine Corps, what were the deciding factors that, you know, made you want to say, I want to, I want to pursue something else outside the military? Um, I think at the time there, there was certainly a, a bit of deployment exhaustion. Um, you know, all, all of our friends that, you know, we've known in the service, uh, we, I did one deployment. It was kind of like going to the Super Bowl. We came back, we said, yeah, we did it. We're never going to go back again. And literally got told after our 30 day block leave that we were going back in five months. So we had to go through all the lane training or I got selected as the advanced party OIC, you know, you go back out for your second deployment. And then the second deployment was, you know, significantly more challenging you know you're going from an environment where there really wasn't too much of a military challenge in some ways and to an environment where it's more coin yeah definitely counterinsurgency for those who don't understand yeah counterinsurgency operations and it was the very beginning of sort of what we talked about before going from sort of jv skills to graduate level skills in a very short period of time and I think at that point it was, okay, I've, I've done my bit for King and country. Um, it's, it's time to go do something else. And, and just to kind of give a little background, uh, you and I prior to us starting the recording, like he was in Al probably about a year before I got to Al which we did the episode bastards and brothers, where we highlighted a lot of my experiences and the experiences of third battalion, second Marines. You was in third battalion, seventh Marines at the time where he had many different experiences in the same area of operations. Yeah, so. that, that train station was something else. Yes. <laughs> and it's still there. It is. Oh, um, we actually had an incident. Uh, I remember hearing about where a guy was on one of the posts on, I want to say on the north side of the camp. Okay. And uh, right next to the train track and a train was coming through. And he didn't know what to do. And he was on a Mark 19. Uh, he had a Mark 19 on his post. So he, he traversed that Mark 19 over and just started shooting Mark 19 rounds at the train. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was, you know, that was a that was a special place. It was. It was a special place. Many days and hours spent in a smoke pit for me. Yes, I could definitely agree with that. So yeah, so that's that's kind of where that's kind of where that went, you know, back to back deployments. Um, you know, the second deployment was definitely a little bit more challenging, and and at the time, um, I'd actually been selected. So I, I'd already been promo- uh, selected for promotion to captain, and the option was basically for me to go on a back to back fleet tour with an engineering support group in Okinawa. And I think at that point, I was like, yeah, I I kind of need a break. That's the only option they gave you. Uh, pretty much. Oh wow. Oh. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, that's that's rough. So, oh. so congratulations. Go out, go out and be a frocked captain and run a company out in Okinawa. And so <laughs> we're not like, gonna we're not gonna pay you more. We're just gonna pin the rank on your collar and make you do more work. <laughs> Eventually the pay is gonna catch up to you. That's uh yeah, frocking is such a raw deal, man. Well, it's I mean, it's something you really only see you don't really see that in the division that much. And and I understood. I mean, at the time the selection process for captain was I mean, good Lord, I showed up, I showed up at Alkaim and I was at that point, a three-year first Lieutenant and the army guys there were captains at two years. So even though I'm sitting here calling them, sir, because they're right, they're just like, oh, it's okay, dude. And I'm just like, uh, so <laughs> I mean, at the time, I think it was selection, selection at roughly four year, four, three and a half to four years. And then you would actually be pinned on because of the delay 
with filtering people out through the the vampire cycle, like pinning on would be like a year and a year and a half later. Uh, it's still kind of that way, um, depending right. on your number. Um, I recently got select for major and they haven't promoted anyone in the last like two to three months. So wow. same, same old bullshit. Um, so was the military, was the Marine Corps your first exposure to firearms or had you had some experience with, uh, with guns before that? Um, from an extended perspective, yes. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, you know, even though growing up in Kentucky, I really didn't have a whole lot of exposure to firearms. Um, th this is kind of a funny story. Like the first time I knew that I was going to the Marine Corps and I thought, Hey, I need to learn something about firearms. Um, I didn't really know where to go. And I think that's, you know, that, that, that was pre-internet days. So of all things, I went and I went and called my uh, hometown police department and said, hey, I want to learn more about guns. Where can you send me? And of course, being in a small community in Western Kentucky, you know, that's that's not an unusual question. I suppose these days, if we were to call the San Jose Police Department, they'd be like, uh, we're going to show up at your door. Yeah, we're going um, <laughs> to cut your we're going to cut your power. We're going to cordon off your street. So the police department actually sent me to a fish and game warden mm -hmm. and I think that's something that we really don't stress enough within the firearms community um, or the second Amendment community in general is that, you know, we're all willing to basically help bring in, um, bring in people that just don't know what our world is in a very friendly environment. And so this was, I mean, it was crazy. So I called this fish game warden up and he was literally like, Hey, what time you might just come out to my place? I'm like, what? We're not going to go to a range. Like he just, you know, he had a berm built up in his backyard and I just, you know, I just drove over to his place to say, Hey, my name's you, man. You know? And he literally had, you know, all his stuff brought out everything from a 22 revolver all the way up to an AR 15, um, you know, a pump shotgun, semi-automatic shotgun. And we literally just went out to this guy's backyard. And, you know, after he gave me some lessons on the fundamental safety rules, then it was like, okay, try this out, try this out, try this out. And, you know, then we get to talking afterwards and turns out he was a, a National Guard, you know, sniper that had been in Bosnia back in the day. So that was that was a really uh, kind of like what the community thing we're speaking of with uh, USPSA competitive shooting in general. It was a really easy entry to, hey, this isn't just some scary thing. You know, we're not all just a bunch of, uh, of you know, right wing, uh, right wing crazies. It's like, hey, we're just regular people. And we, you know, we we're very welcoming to anybody who wants to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm assuming that you, so you, if you enlist or if you joined out of um, the, College. basically, the, yeah, um, you went to, well, no, that's right. You went to uh, Quantico, right? Yep. OCS. Um, were there a lot of Asians in your, in your OCS class or joining at the time? So my OCS class is a little bit unusual because we were, um, we were, we were not a PLC uh, for in, those that aren't familiar, PLC is the platoon leaders course that you can go to if you're an ROTC or you're still in college. Uh, the OCC, the officer candidate uh, class that I went through, was about 60% prior enlisted. Um, there was actually more. Wow. There, yeah, it's 60% yeah, prior enlisted. Wow. Yeah, 60% prior enlisted, which was entertaining in of itself. Uh, from a minority perspective, um, there there were there were more people than I expected. Um, you know, so my one of my best friends from the Marine Corps. Uh, he's in the Army Medical Corps now. You know, he was from Cornell. I think there was another Korean guy that I knew that was from uh, Bowdoin, from Bowdoin College. So, you know, percentage percentage wise compared to, you know, your demographics in the rest of the country, it was it was fairly, fairly accurate. Yeah, I just bring it up because um, I, I enlisted first, went to Paris Island. This is in <laughs> 2010. And I was like the only Asian person in the entire zip code. So I was like the gateway 
Asian for a lot of my platoon mates. They've never met, like they've come up to me and be like, I've never met a Chinese person before. You're my first. I'm like, happy to be here, buddy. Um, so yeah, just, just curious about that. And um, I mean, having served in Southern California, you see a little more like, um, you know, in Asian American serving, but definitely in Lejeune, like there's, man, well, let's just say that 2020 was a bad time to be an Asian dude with allergies in the South. Right. No, and, and, I, and I understand. I mean, having spent most of my time on the West Coast, you know, it, there's there's a little bit of a different environment there as opposed to the East Coast. And it it sort of is what it is. Um, you know, even you know, the idea of, you know, what is it like growing up as an Asian, uh, as a Chinese guy in Western Kentucky and then going to college and then joining the Marine Corps after that? Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough that it, it's it, it i've been fortunate enough that my experience was generally more good than bad and Same. so especially with being in the marine corps you know you really begin to understand how to put things in the appropriate context right so like not everything that is you know, put out there verbally or even written is is meant to be an intentional insult i mean look we're all in the marine corps we insult everybody yeah right so it, it does help from that perspective to be able to say okay you know are are you just messing with me because you know we're all one big brotherhood or are you actually going somewhere else and you know attuning that sensitivity in in the right way i think that that was something that was very helpful for me uh you know coming from an immigrant family sure whenever i joined the marine corps back in 2002 uh, I had never been around so many white people in my life. People ask me, where are you from? North Cuba. They're like, what? North Cuba. I'm from Miami. They're like, oh, yeah. I hadn't been around so many white people in my life until I joined the Marine Corps, though. And then you had all a bunch of corn fed dudes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, but you're right. You know, uh, we do all make fun of each other uh, sometimes to an ex ex excess uh, but at the end of the day, we all love each other in the same way. Well, at the end of the day, if I, if we're not making fun of you, it, it means we don't care about you. Yeah. 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 No, that's actually spot on. Um, okay. So you got a little firearms training before you uh, joined the Marine Corps. And then a lot of your interface with marksmanship was before uh, when you joined as an officer. Um, having experienced practical shooting. And this is a recurring theme in a lot of our guests who have military backgrounds, right? They do the whole annual rifle training. They do the bullseye style stuff. They learn sight alignment. They shoot irons. And then they find practical shooting later on in their life. And they're like, man, my, my understanding of marksmanship would have been fundamentally different. And I would have been a much different shooter if I had discovered this sooner. Did you have that same realization when you eventually found USPSA? Um, I definitely did so from a pistol perspective. So from a rifle marksmanship perspective, I think the Marine Corps still does a very good job essentially teaching rifle uh, rifle marksmanship fundamentals to um, a, a broader audience, right? You, you don't really know who you're going to get. And even now, when I go through the process of trying to zero a rifle or, you know, picking up a rifle and shooting in for the first time, you know, some of those fundamentals, I think, are still very applicable in terms of, okay, well, let's see where your rifle zeroed at. Okay, what do I remember from my time at rifle marksmanship training? <clears throat> now, from a pistol perspective training, you know, for better or for worse, the Marine Corps does say every Marine is a, a rifleman. So the the bulk of the focus is uh, uh, is there. So we at least teach people, okay, these are the fundamentals. Now, talking with Brian Nelson and kind of the work that he's doing with the um, uh, at the Brink Corps right now, finding that that link between, okay, you know the fundamentals, slow fire. Now, how do we get to a place where you can 
uh, operate this in a dynamic environment, um, you know, that's that's always kind of a work in progress. And I mean, especially so from my perspective, we were still using irons, the M16, uh, M16A4s with the uh, one and four uh, with the four power ACOG scopes, I think what you guys call the RCOs now, you know, yeah. we literally got those before our first deployment in 2003. So we're sitting here running out with these ACOGs. Nobody really knows how the BDC concept works. You know, nobody really understood like, hey, how is this going to be different than the irons? And, you know, there was a real transition process. And so, they really they really didn't start training people with the RCOs, ACOGs back then, like formally training them until around 2007 either. Yeah, that probably sounds about right. I think we literally got a, okay, well, this is where you sort of mount it and you put the, you put the, the Chevron here and then uh, this is kind of where it goes. But then there was no discussion. Of, you know, there really wasn't a, an in-depth discussion on, okay, this is how the bullet drop compensator works. This is where you need to put it based on various distances. And to be perfectly honest, we were just happy that we finally got rifles with quad rails on them and not like an M16A2. We're like, oh my God, we have an optic and not irons. <laughs> so, you know, there was there was definitely a little bit of that, you know, hey, we finally got some new toys. Now, from a pistol perspective, um, you know, it's kind of a, a side note and, and it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It just is because I think, we all recognize in the in the Marine Corps and even with the McMap training program, you know, the whole purpose of you trying to um, go through all this uh, combat instruction is so that you can get a rifle because a rifle is a much better tool than a pistol or anything else. So mm -hmm. the fundamentals of pistol marksmanship, you know, the, that's a little bit more of a hasty process. I mean, look, I remember when I went through my officer training, um, I hated the Beretta, right? I thought that it was too Same. big. I couldn't deal with like the double action. And, you know, and, and at this point, what, what's the qual, right? The qual is what, three to five yards. And I'm sitting there going like, I can't shoot this gun. I'm dipping shots, you know? And so to look back 20 years later, you know, I shoot, uh, I shot CZs or uh, Tanfos where it's a double action shot and going, I really wish I knew this back then because the, the standards are not incredibly difficult, but it's, you know, th there's only so much time. And I, I think that's something that, it has to be put in the appropriate context where given all the things that the military has to teach you, um, you know, pistol skills are, are invariably going to be something that maybe falls by the wayside, not because we don't care, but because we have to teach you bigger things, you know, like how to run a unit, how to call, you know, combine, combine fires, you know, that's where you're going to have a bigger impact than, Hey, I can, I can shoot a USPSA stage in, you know, 20 seconds with, uh, you know, with whatever handgun you give me and I can be fairly accurate at it. Um, but yeah, de definitely like USPSA has probably taught me more about how to be a better pistol shooter uh, than than anything else I've been able to find. Nice. Very well said. Uh, so you have a reputation as a traveling RO, the traveling RO. Um, first time I met you was actually uh, a year ago. We, uh, we were at the Florida State match at the Wyoming Antelope Club, and you were ROing the stage that was basically classifier. Right. Um, so... Is that a community of ROs that does a lot of travel, like goes to a bunch of different matches? Do you run into a lot of the same faces? Um, you'll definitely, it's it's definitely regional to a certain extent. Um, from a national level perspective, there's usually the same cadre of ROs that are willing to travel and meet up with each other. You know, there's 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 definitely a certain amount of community that revolves around that. Um, and it's it's you know, it's it's a really great community. I mean, my the first time I worked nationals, you know, I met up with some of the you know, the, the older RO cadre and, you know, they, they did a really, 
they were very welcoming. I think just the same way as when you started off with your USPSA experience and, and you know, your path, it was, Hey, you know, you actually know what, you, no, there's a little bit of testing, you know, do you actually know what you're doing? Okay. You actually know what you're doing. Okay. You're cool. You know, okay. Now you're kind of in, in, in the circle of trust, so to speak. Um, but there's, there's definitely a, a, a dedicated group of people, not only nationally, but internationally as well, that you'll see them at all the same matches because, you know, they, they care enough about the sport and making sure that we're all treated fairly to, you know, to make the sacrifice. Yeah. And it's awesome. And, you know, major matches wouldn't happen without that contract, without those dedicated volunteers. Um, when did that traveling in earnest really start for you? So let's see, I think I started USPSA sometime what late 2014 2015 um i had got my ro certification like less than a year later um and so from about i really about two to three about two years in i pretty much just started working matches uh some of it was certainly financially related um hey i can work a match and still shoot and and not you know pay instead of paying an arm a leg i'm just paying an arm Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just kind of started off with that process and, and it became sort of a, well, Hey, what are these guys doing here? You know, what are these guys doing here? Hey, let me go check out this match. Let me go check out that match. And it just sort of grew from there. And then with the amount of traveling that you do, I have to imagine it's a, um, it's a unique way to see the country, meet different people and get to know USPSA over the different regions. So I guess what are some of the things that you've noticed or that you've learned from your travels? What I, I think the thing that I really picked up for my travels is that every area and region has the they've come up with different solutions to common issues. So I remember the first time I worked the Area 8 Championship up in um up in Antolani. Antolani. Yeah, yeah, up in Antolani. So, you know, when we build our local matches, we're always concerned like, hey, who's going to shoot up our walls? You know, how are you going to be able to determine how wall hits are made and if that's a scoring hit and whatnot? So when the first time I went to Antolani, they actually, what, what they actually did is they actually put up a, a corrugated plastic, core plast. And mm-hmm. so they would actually use that as designated hardcover on those areas that you think would be, you know, tight shots or whatever. And the first time I looked at it, it was it was like seeing fire for the first time because I'd never heard about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's really something that I think as an organization, you know, we we really should be um, sort of collecting best practices. You know, that's something that we we are in the process of working on. And you see some some of that coming from, you know, the uh, NRI and the, the tips of uh blogs and podcasts that they put out. Uh, but, you know, just even from a match administration perspective, you know, I know from the Marine Corps perspective, you know, that's all about centers of excellence. And, you know, the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab is supposed to be an organization that kind of takes the best uh, suggestions and then sees what works and, and promulgates that out to the rest of the, uh, the rest of the organization. You know, that was something that I think was really interesting to see people figure out how to solve a problem in a way that I just, you know, I'd never thought about before. And so then you, you bring that home and, and you're sort of spreading those good ideas by osmosis. Um, and I, you know, that, that was, that was really the biggest take for me. Oh, this is how you can solve this problem. Oh, this is how you can solve this problem uh, where, you know, you have to evaluate why it works. And I think we'll get to that when we start talking about staff reset, but, you know, being able to take those ideas and, and structuring and going, okay, is this something that works for the organization across the country? Or is this something that is specific to that region because, you know, they have access to different resources or, or knowledge base. Yeah. Well said. So USPSA is responsible for the team slots for the IPSC world shoot for pistol, rifle, shotgun, and, you know, 
for the the process for pistol is pretty well laid out you know and it has been for the past few years you know shoot two ipsic matches you know national matches and then shoot two uspsa national matches and you guys kind of got the aggregates and determined who's first second third and, and determined team slots and while that works for pistol uh the rifle and shotgun world shoot doesn't really have you know the, it doesn't have the same representation as pistol. Um, and as a Marine, you know, rifle marksmanship is in our DNA and USP is USPSA, the right organization to determine IPSC world shoot team slots for rifle and shotgun. And if not, who should be in charge of that? And if so, what can be done to establish a fair and equitable process for determining who gets in to represent the U S well, so that's that's actually something I've been working on here since I've uh, come into office. You know, at the end of the day, um, all the IPSC disciplines, and there's a lot of disciplines out there. Uh, USPSA as the IPSC, you know, as the IPSC representative and the IPSC region, you know, it is it is part of our mandate to determine that pl uh, selection process, and you know, for better or for worse, you know, like we've talked about before the recording started. You know, you get somebody who can be uh, who can be a champion or an advocate that that's really the the first step you know essentially if you're trying to create a, a process you know from scratch so what we have you know within the handgun community you know that that's been a focus just because that's what we we were primarily interested in and not really interested in, but that that was our core area with rifle and shotgun there are definitely some very different challenges um you know we in the united states were we focused a little bit more, more on the multi-gun side and if you look at some of the rifle uh, rifle matches and the shotgun matches that are out there, um, it is a very different flavor. So we're not necessarily talking about, you know, hosing and, and you know, there, there's always going to be a reloading component to shotgun, uh, but they're, they really test, some of those matches really test your ability to be very, very, very surgical with a shotgun. I mean, you're, you're saying like, hey, I want you to hit a swinging clay at 30 yards with birdshot. And you know, that's, that's really a concept where we go, well, wait a minute. Like you really have to know what your spread is. You need to know what your pattern is. And it really tests the capabilities of a shotgun in a way that, you know, we very rarely seen before here. So at the end of the day, you know, it, it is part of our, uh, it is part of our responsibility to determine a selection process, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be the ones that actually administer and run the selection process, you know, running matches, has a cost associated with it. And it's a balance that has to be achieved with, you know, the, the major events that the USPSA has to run. Um, so that's, that's something that, well, that I'm working on in terms of, okay, we have a shotgun world shoot at the end of this year um, for better, for worse, you know, the selection process, once it's approved by the board of directors is not going to be ideal, but it's going to be the best solution possible given the short time frame probably something very similar to the rifle world shoot because the rifle world shoot is 2024 in i believe Sweden finland fin yeah finland yeah. so there's there's a certain amount of hey we want to be able to make sure that the membership has have enough time to be able to put that in their schedule to qualify for a match so and and that's that's you know very compressed time schedule to do so now moving forward with shotgun and rifle it's an ongoing discussion with some of the folks in the uh in the, some of the best competitors in the industry and some of the folks that uh, have actually experienced ipsc shotgun and rifle to go okay you know we're not necessarily going to be, be able to do a 12 to 18 round 
you know, eight, 18 match nationals where you're going to be able to test out all these skills, but can we come up with something that is still, that still tests people's ability that it's somewhat performance proficiency based, but it's not necessarily something that's going to require a, a major muscle movement. So that mm -hmm. that's an, that's an ongoing process. And, but I, I do believe that, you know, as, as USPSA, you know, it's a, it is our responsibility to promote where we can and come up with a selection process for the various IPSC disciplines as well. Do you think a regional solution would be a better, uh, a better process? Like instead of trying to have a nationals where everybody, you know, comes in at one location, uh, rather than doing that, just have like a region regional matches around and say, Hey, this is how we're going to do this process. You don't have to travel that far. It's within your area uh hosting something like that and they take the best aggregates from the top competitors so that's something that that uh that that's definitely been discussed i think the challenge to a certain extent is that you want to have the very best competitors participate in these matches so that way you have an appropriate benchmark right i mean you mm -hmm. could have a regional solution and if you know the national guys are off you know with with other obligations then you could you know you could have somebody comes in and says hey i won this regional thing but then you're looking at the you know you're looking at the other top competitors and realizing it's like okay you know somebody might have won just because they were the best there at the time and that's not to say that that person couldn't be good performing at a, at a national stage um you, you want to be, you want to just make sure that you have the appropriate benchmarks. And some of that is ensuring that the, the best competitors will, will be in, uh, motivated to participate. So, I mean, so it could also be something where it's a rotating series, right? So if we say, Hey, you know, for shotgun, you know, you've got, you know, you've got one event in say North Carolina, you got one event up in Minnesota where Adam Maxwell is doing the multi-gun nationals and maybe a third event, you know, that's something where if it's spaced out enough, you know, people could have that, people could understand like, hey, this is kind of where the matches I need to go to that are qualifying matches, but there's a level of consistency and administration where everybody knows that, you know, if you place well at this particular event, um, you know, everybody's, every, everybody has had the same opportunity and the same competitive equity to go, yeah, this is an appropriate solution. And at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's going to be iterative. Um, it's going to be a little bit of expeditionary warfare planning and, and putting things out there. Um, and it's uh, ultimately, it's also finding the right, you know, the right advocates to sort of champion that and push, push those things forward. So we've got some pretty good people that I'm talking out to that are very interested in the process. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a more defined process, at least for shotgun, um, you know, hopefully by the beginning of next year. So everybody knows, hey, these are the matches you have to go to. And that's how you'll be tested appropriately. Oh, that's awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah, good to hear that you guys are. Uh, I'm excited to see what the uh, solution is. Um, but I wanted to switch the uh, topic to like nationals, uh, specifically USPSA nationals. So this last summer, uh, I had the privilege of traveling with the Marine Corps shooting team for uh, their summer season. So we did a bunch of sectional state and then uh, a couple area matches and we ended at nationals. Now going into nationals, uh, Scott Raider, who's been with the team for a very long time, he basically sat us down and said like, hey, like nationals, like everyone expects nationals to be like this capstone events amazing event and he's like i'll be honest like it's probably not the best match you're going to shoot this summer and he was right uh for a variety of reasons but i would like to talk a little bit about um i guess the disparity in quality with nationals between that and like area and state matches um 
is that an agreed upon sentiment uh, within USPSA that nationals should be like the very best competitive venue for shooters in the United States? So as far as nationals, I I think just by the dint of the the name itself, you know, the expectation is that yeah, this is supposed to be the capstone event. Um, you know, there's there's definitely some challenges in running nationals that. Are, are, very, are very unique compared to what you would see at like an area or section match. So I, a, a really good example would be, you know, most of the guy, m- most of your area section, you know, state championships and even the Caribbean open that I'm going to next year, you know, that is your one event, right? That's the one event that you're planning for, you know, that your, your funding sources, your staffing, you know, all the administrate admin and logistics elements that go into running to the match, you know, that's kind of your sole focus. And from, uh, from the USPS perspective, we don't have just one match. I think this year we're, you know, we're, we're basically running and funding or, or, uh, internal to the organization, three, three handgun nationals plus the world speed shoot for steel challenge. So you're already talking about at this point, four matches, four major nationals compared to kind of an area match, which that person just, you know, whoever the match director is, handling that just has to deal with that one match and there's a, a worker period towards that um some of that is a, uh some of that is really kind of you talk about the operational planning process i think that's a really good way to put it for the audience that usually listens to this mm-hmm. so uh, for anybody that works in an, uh, in an s3 or a g3 you know you usually have a planning cycle that says hey this is the metals that we're working on uh and then based on those metals this is the division regimental and battalion medals and then your operational staff usually starts the planning process what you know fourth quarter of the year so that planning process occurs so that when you get into the next calendar year you already have your teep your training uh, whatever that's called your teep is set out so you know what you're what you're achieving working towards till the end of the year so the way that uh, our schedule works in USPSA it's it's a little bit you know it's a little bit less I want. I don't. I don't want to say less structured, but it's a little bit more in flux mm-hmm. because of the way that um, the way that contracts can be written, the and who can deal with the contracts and the scheduling and so on and so forth. So rather than you know being in a position, and we've tried to do this in the past, and, and that's generally worked out pretty well, where you write a long term contract for um, a period of time, and that's restricted to you know basically a presidential term, right? So say for example. Um, any contract that I were to write this year that can extend till 2024. But, you know, um, if I were to be, you know, whoever wins the election this year for the president, then starting in 2024, you have the flexibility to be able to say, write a three-year contract, which would establish some stability. And that's really the key. Having that stability in a location, uh, as well as your logistical resources goes a long way so that you can plan a match more towards how to make something a better experience as opposed to, you know, if we're, we're going to two new ranges, uh, we're going to Ohio this year for two new nationals, there's a certain amount of workup period that's that's required because we are going to a new location. Okay, so do you have enough walls? Do you have enough props? You know, what are the facilities like? How is everybody going to get there? Where are the hotels going to be like? And if you look at the planning process, we started off and we announced that we were going to Ohio in what, end of September, October, and yeah. the very first match is in June. Yeah, like that's a really compressed admin and logistics timetable to be able to, you know, really dedicate time to look at 
creating the match as like an overall experience. And, and there's going to be some, you know, there's going to be some triage that's done. Now, let's say we're at Ohio in 2024. Okay, we've worked out the kinks, we've gone through, you know, figured out some of the, the planning and logistical issues. You know, I could certainly see that when we get to 2024, you know, that, that experience could be a little bit better because now you can expand your scope and go, okay, well, how can we really make this match um, you know, what are some ways that we could make this match feel more like a nationals? And I think that's really the struggle is that we, you know, we're, we're constantly moving. And every time you shift locations, you have, you know, you're sort of reinventing the wheel to a certain extent. And that's not to say that it's, you know, it's the correct paradigm. It's kind of the paradigm that we're in right now. That makes sense. I mean, you know, um, in the Marine Corps, you move every three years and, Every time you move, you have to reestablish new relationships and you kind of have to figure out where everything's at. Where's the PX at? Like, where are the people that I can trust to like make things happen? So it does make sense. And especially, you know, going to a new location that two or three years um, after you've been in that location, that was that's probably going to be your best nationals at that location. It's kind of like when any company drops their first iteration of a product, you probably, you know, that it's expected that it's going to uh, improve. Um so I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, specifically, you know, um, Brian Connolly's Hunter's HD Gold podcast. I think he get, he's really good at like interviewing people. Um, and I listen to all the ones with USPSA leadership, uh, specifically, you know, Troy and uh, Jake Martins. And uh, it just seemed like, and it may just be a symptom of having to put on so many nationals back to back that there's not a whole lot of brain power or desire for a lot of these innovations and changes on the fly, but it seemed like there was a lot of resistance to things like staff reset and some of these other innovations that you're starting to see crop up at the state match and like area area um, match level. Um, and, you know, he made this offhand comment that was basically like, I think pasting resetting is part of the match. Um and he's like, I, that's how I get my steps in. That's, you know, that's how I get my, uh, my activity in. And we're all Marines. We stay in shape on our own time. It's not really, it wasn't really a good rationale for me. So um, is that basically it? That you guys have so many back-to-back -back events that you were trying to be more procedural and far out with your implementation of some of these new innovations? Or is there some kind of resistance to some of these new um, match adaptations that are happening at the state level. Um, I think the first, the you know, the first way to uh, frame that particular discussion is, you know, one, what we see at you know what you talked about with like Area Six, uh, the North Carolina sectional being able to do uh, South Carolina sectional being able to do staff reset is you take that idea and you and you just go, okay, well, why why does this work here? And it's not necessarily that's something that that could be scaled up at a nationals level. So if you take a look at the North Carolina sectional, you look at Area Six, and you look at uh, the South Carolina sectional when there's already a fairly strong cadre of range officers that are willing to volunteer their time and help, and they're able to, you know, it's it's within a relative close proximity to where the match is. You know, you have that critical mass that you can draw on where you can support the match in a way that isn't just hey, go paste and reset. Um, when you start talking about a nationals level, and I'll refer back to the discussion about, you know, your experience at nationals, there's, you know, there's always, if you look at the TEEP, right, there's always sort of a downtime, right? So typically with an uh, infantry battalion, you know, you're going to start off at the beginning of the calendar year, and you're going to train up to eventually, you know, what, what are they calling CACs these days? Are they calling it an FTX or something? I, I, it's called ITX. ITX, now. Yeah. ITX, you know, whatever name, right? Trainer. But, but, 
but the ITX is essentially the capstone, right? So every division, every battalion knows that they're going to go through a workup cycle. So from squad, platoon, company level exercises, battalion level exercises, which culminates in a combined fire exercise or ITX or whatever they're calling it out in 29 Palms, you tie it all together. And there's a very definite timeline, which is usually what, like, a year to nine months or something like that, which is also integrated into when you get your new joins so that you can integrate them into how the battalion functions. So what we have on USPA, the USPA side is something that's significantly more compressed. Okay, I'm going to announce, you know, I announced nationals at the end of October and the very first one is going to be in June. And I know immediately what it is that we have to do as an organization, but then to be able to think outside that paradigm, you know, there's, there's not that, same amount of space and we literally are just going from nationals to nationals 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 now does that necessarily mean that the paradigm should be okay let's reduce it down to one to two nationals so that we can you know have that appropriate strategic planning process so that you can say okay well if we were to do something like staff reset would that be possible who knows i mean it, it it's 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 an option that could be explored and then you also have to deal with you know your customers expectations or the membership expectations of well i want to be able to shoot you know x number of nationals or i want to be able to go to a nationals so these are very you know important philosophical questions that you know it's hard to find that space because there's the immediacy of wait, we have a nationals, like we already you know we already had to do registration for the slot codes so on and so forth so that being said um there's a little bit of a it's it's a little bit of okay staff reset works in this particular environment and i think it's important for us to be able to uh, assess like okay well why does staff reset work in this particular environment okay staff work reset works because you have a base of 500 ro's who are willing to volunteer their time okay how do i scale that to a nationals okay i've got a nationals in ohio what's the base there uh, okay, I've got 250. I've got less base. So then even if if the, uh, the the concept is good, do you have the administrative logistical footprint to be able to support that? And I, I, that's really, I think, um, something that, you know, is, is, is relevant to the question. So you can say, yeah, I'd like to do staff reset. Uh, but do I have the ability and the resources to do so? You know, if, if, you know, let's just say as an RO, right? If you were, if you were said, if you said, "Hey, I want to apply to work nationals," and you got told that, "Yeah, you're going to spend three days here just resetting that piece of steel and pasting these two targets," you know, th there is a certain amount of, "Okay, why did I take, you know, why did I take a week off of work just to go do this?" Um, it's not to say that it can't be done, but you know, even from even from an IPSC perspective, you know, those guys at their level three matches, they're they're not necessarily just having people, you know, reload their mags and paste and reset. You know, there's a certain amount of paste and reset that occurs there too, from the competitor perspective. So yeah, mm -hmm. um, you brought up RO bases, and I guess you know, it just occurred to me that you might have an RO base in a particular part of the country, but not all those ROs would be interested in necessarily staffing the match. Like some of them may just want to go and shoot as a competitor. Cause we all, like we all know, you know, especially uh, as, as a traveling RO, like shooting on staff day, if you are trying to be at your best competitively is not in your best interest. Um, you know, staff day for a lot of, for, for a lot of uh, purposes is really like the beta test for the actual match proper. Um, but I mean, I think a lot of adaptations have been made, right? Like the adoption of live scoring is a is a very, I think is very welcome. The fact that we're getting away from the paper receipts and just going to emails, I think is good. So um, yeah, interested to see what you guys come up with in the future. Sounds good.
So you recently shot an IPSC handgun world shoot. Are there any ipsychisms that you think would benefit and uh, for USPSA to adapt? So I'm going to couch this from the perspective of that. So the IPSC world shoot is a level five match and our nationals and, and most major matches that we go through are a level three match. So there's definitely differences in kind of what's expected um, from a planning time scale. A world shoot usually has three years to prepare. And as we've talked about before, you know, with the uh, nationals, we get six to nine months really to plan for that. So there's certain aspects that you'll see on social media. We're like, Hey, why can't I have a 7-Eleven there to buy stuff? You know, why, you know, why don't we have a uh, staff reset? You know, why don't we have, um, you know, a big opening and closing award ceremony. Uh, some of that is being aware of the audience that currently attends the nationals. Um, would I like to see staff reset? Cool. Now, if you guys can get a bunch of guys from, uh, I mean, so the guys who did staff reset of the world shoot, they were cool. You also know who they were. They're a bunch of junior enlisted from the Tyrell Navy that got ordered to support ah, that match for two got weeks. Em. Got him. <laughs> Dude. And, and, and don't, you can hey, tell I need, I need, I need like 200 for a working party. Oh, uh, no, I'm serious. It was like, you, your appointed place of duty is to be oh. at this range for the next two and a half weeks. And all you will do is reset the match. Right. I mean, I have a picture, you know, what, what is it? You know, anytime you have an opportunity to rest, everybody's just laying out on those god awful like plastic chairs, just trying to get some shut eye because you're like, I don't know when I'm going to get woken up to go do something else. So that that's a certain aspect when people say staff reset, it's like, okay, well, I mean, unless I'm going to go down to Paris Island and somehow convince, you know, the commandant of the island to give me 200 bodies or 200 recruits, you know, there, there are certain aspects that are challenging from there. Um, I will say the one thing I did like about the world shoot and you know, it, it can be contentious is that, you know, when you get the make ready command, because of, you know, you're not able to take a site picture, you're not able to dry fire. Um, the analogy that was given to me was that, you know, if you look at the Olympics, you know, when somebody goes on the slalom, you know, they don't get, you know, five minutes to kind of go, let me run through the course in my head. It's usually pretty quick, right? Like when you're told to make ready, it's like, okay, you know, you basically have to, you know, uh, be ready to go within 30 seconds. And so, on the one hand, you know, is that something that we need to mandate? Uh, that That's always going to be contentious. You know, it's not like I'm a division commander can say, hey, this is the rule of the day and everybody's going to say, aye, aye, sir. But culturally, I, I did actually find it, you know, a lot easier than I expected. You know, okay, load my gun, make sure my dots on holster, take like 10 seconds to go, what am I going to do? And then go shoot. Now, the additional context of that is, in a world shoot in any IPSC match, it's always the three, two, one. So for every six stages you shoot, you know, you're going to see three short courses, two medium courses and one long course. So because you know, you've got three short courses, do you really need, you know, a minute and a half to think about what you're going to shoot? It's like, you go up in the stage, you go, okay, shoot this deal, shoot that paper, shoot that paper, shoot the steel and shoot the swinger. So, you know, the, that whole idea of being able to make ready faster, it's its something that fits with an IPSC because of the way that their stages are set up. You know, mm. I, we can go to a major match and go, okay, well, there's 1032 round count stages, you know, with 17 different options in every stage. You know, that's a little bit more challenging to say, hey, let's have a, a defined make ready time. Um, I think, you know, a, a direct answer is that there are certain things that IPSC does well. There, I think there's certain things that we do well and they're, they're just unique given what our environment is like. You know, there's just, there's 
I mean, USPSA, I mean, you, you guys are, you know, military. I mean, the, the relationship between uh, USPSA and the military and law enforcement community is something that most IPSA countries would dream. Like they can't mm -hmm. even dream or understand that we would have, um, you know, force uh, folks from the military community, law enforcement community, or the special forces community that would promote the sport. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a far different mentality. Um, and just the fact that we can, you know, just go down and pick up a gun within a day and just go out and shoot it the day after, you know, that's something that just is, it's not something that they're, they can be mindful of. I mean, just even attending the world shoot, you get a certificate that says you attended the world shoot. And for several, many countries, they need that certificate just so they can go back to their country and say, can I have another gun? Hmm. Huh. Well, really puts things into perspective. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think Becky Ackley kind of said something along the same lines, uh, you know, and some of them, yeah, they do have to travel across the world no matter what in order to keep their guns, you know, that's that's interesting. Yeah, um, all really great points. Um, you mean, we appreciate you coming on and answering all our questions, uh, but at this point, is there anything else that you would uh, like to leave the listeners with? Um, I just want to thank you all both for, you know, having, having me on the show. It's always great, especially to talk to a bunch of Marines and, you know, bring up some terminology where I'm like, oh God, I don't have to explain what teeper metals are. Um, so no, it's a lot of fun. I really do appreciate, you know, the work that you guys are doing. Uh, definitely, you know, it's really nice to see the Marine Corps, you know, taking a more proactive stance on competitive shooting and how it fits within, within the Marine Corps mission. You know, go, go defeat our country's enemies and drink lots of beer. Or bourbon. Or bourbon and smoke cigars. Yes. Well, now we we appreciate this, and uh, you know, to the listeners out there, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, please give us some feedback if you have any questions for you men or even us. Please just let us know. Uh, also, if you could, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever device you listen to this on or platform you listen to this on, and we really appreciate you listening. Have a great night. Er, er.